Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and welcome to the Foreign Exchanges Podcast. Hi, so it's been a while since we did one of these podcasts, and I do apologize for that. I will have a little bit more to say about the future of the Foreign Exchanges podcast at the end of this episode. If anybody wants to stick around and listen to me ramble about that, you're welcome to do that. But I don't want to do it up front. I don't want to delay getting to what is a wonderful interview. I'm very pleased to have been able to invite and, and have him accept Carl Petrie, who is Professor Emeritus of History, the Hamid Ibn Khalifa Al Thani Professor of Middle East Studies at Northwestern University. He has written a book, The Mamluk Sultanate, A History. It was published last year. It is available anywhere you would want to shop for books. If you are at all interested in Islamic history, or history in general. This is a fascinating period. The Mamluks ruled Egypt, Syria, the Hejaz from the middle of the 13th century until they were conquered by the Ottomans in the early 16th century. They are a, a, an absolutely fascinating dynasty of slave soldiers, essentially. The system that they created to accommodate that peculiar, those peculiar origins is very interesting. They occupy an underrated, I think, place in Islamic history. And I say underrated because in English, at least, Professor Petrie's book is, is really the first standalone survey history of the Mamluks. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is. It's not the first survey history. He does mention some earlier ones, but in terms of just a standalone book that you can pick up on the Mamluks, this is it. And I would urge you to check it out. I'll have a link in the show description. So like I said, if you want to stick around afterwards, I'll talk a little bit more about how this podcast is going to proceed moving forward. But I don't want to delay the interview, so let me cue that up and get to it. Hello, everybody. I am joined, as I said in my introduction, by Carl Petrie. Carl is the Hamad ibn Khalifa Al Thani Professor of Middle East Studies and Professor of History Emeritus at Northwestern University. He is the author of the Mamluk Sultanate, a history which is out in bookstores. You should go check it out. It's a fascinating topic and a book that I think is long overdue. We'll talk a little bit about that. Professor Petrie, thank you so much for, for joining me. No, it's my pleasure. Yes. As I say, I'm always happy to talk about the Mamluks. <laughs> uh, well, I think, why don't we start, uh, you know, as we were talking before the interview, this, this sort of typical opening question for a book interview is what motivated you to write this book on this topic? But having spent a number of years in grad school in Middle East studies with everybody <laughs> seemingly asking, why isn't there a book about the Mamluks? Maybe you could talk a little bit about the state of the of contemporary Mamluk studies and why it, it, we're, we only have just now gotten a, a book like this that, that that covers their period. Yeah, well, that that's it's it's an interesting question. It, it, I suppose there's some simple simple approaches to it. There's some more complex. I think part of the reason was going back to sort of the pioneer age in the earlier 20th century. Philip Hitti at, at Princeton University was one of the first significant scholars actually to get federal money for the study of Arabic. And that's one reason why the Princeton Center was one of the first and, of course, has remained a major center of, of Islamic, especially pre-modern Islamic studies in this field. And for anyone who's read Philip Hitti's History of the Arabs, it's first of all, it's I think it's a somewhat excessive peon to the early, the classical period, which of course, you know, he. I've always said that the classical period in any any era looks good because you don't know much. And the more you know, the, the, the more fascinating it becomes, but there's more warts, there's more problems because, because also as, as historiography develops in different cultures, people I think are more willing to talk about the things that went wrong. And they certainly were in the Mamluk period. In any case, Hitti had a very, very negative opinion of the Mamluks. He, he bought into the issue of the, their, 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 their slave background. They argued that they, there was kind of thuggishness to them, this sort of thing. Well, Hitti's opinion mattered. I mean, he, he trained the first generation of, of, of individuals who taught this field in medieval and pre, pre-modern Islamic history in the United States. I mean, really a great deal of it started with Hitti and anyone who reads the history of the Arabs, which is a, you, you get to that, that last rather measly chapter on the Mamluks at the end, and it's not very positive. And I'm afraid that sort of stuck for a while. And, and so, whereas the Ottomans have had 
major surveys and still continue their surveys being written about them. But of course, the Ottomans too were much better known to Europe because so much of the Ottoman Empire extended into Europe and Europeans had so much contact with it. But also the Mughals of India and the Safavids of Iran. If we look at there are four really large empires in the later middle medieval period going into the early modern period, it's really the Ottomans, Mamluks, Safavids of Iran and Mughals of India. And those three did get those surveys. But I, I, I do think there was a pro- there also, because in some ways there was such a plethora of sources, it took a while for people to sort of get a handle on it. But but I think that's that's one of the reasons why there was this lag. Actually, it's not entirely true. When the Cambridge histories came began coming out, and I, I contributed to the one volume for the Cambridge history of Egypt, but there's this there were reasonable surveys of the Mamluks in, in the Mamluk uh, Sultanate in those studies. So, and I would say in France and Germany, there have been similar studies, and there were certainly people very interested in the field in France and Germany in particular, and you could find it there. But, but I think that's one of the reasons why, as a standalone volume, uh, uh, people really began thinking about doing it 10 years ago. And that's when a number of us started thinking about what it would do to, you know, put together and then what kind of a study it should be. Robert Irwin, a very eminent British scholar who spins a great yarn, I I understood that he is working on one. His would be very different from mine. He would spin a great tale because he's very good at that. And it would it would be very rich in in, and tangentially touch on many of the things that I did. But he would probably spin a yarn because he has a great eye for not only the really spectacular, but also you know the, the, the realistic and seamier side of things often, which is very fascinating. So I can mention instantly how I got into it. I didn't start out in graduate school with an interest in the Mamluks. I, was, I, I started noticing that sources, I was interested in quantification. And I, I noticed that it was really in the Mamluk period, you began encountering sources where that was really possible because basically of biographical dictionaries which are now recognized as one of the truly extraordinary sources. I believe it was someone like Roy Matahida who said, when it comes to the biographical dictionary, we have to think of its importance because it's it's for social history. It's going to be the only source we have for realistic studies. And now one might contest a bit of what, what Matahida said, but he, he he there's no question that the biographical dictionary opened the whole range because you could study at least it is confined to literate people pretty much, but you could get thousands of them. I mean, a source like Safadi's Wafi Bu Wafi, yeah, 30,000 to 35,000 biographies. My gosh, the thing, they started that thing in 1931 and then they only finished publishing it in 2010. So, but you have sources like that. And and unlike unlike the classical period, you have people like Dabari and others, but you know, that's one person's opinion telling you pretty much about people at the top. You know, and it's a great source is his is his Tabari's uh, great history of the first three centuries. But by the Mamluk period, and I, I I noticed, however, that it was the Mamluk period that had produced these biographical sources, and I, I you really you couldn't study them because uh, many of the characters in them were Mamluks, and uh, you, know, you began learning about them. I would say in most of these dictionaries, about a third of the people would be in the military elite, one way or another. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's that's what got me into it. And, and then I found out how fascinating the, the, the institution was on its own. But it was, it was the, the access to certain kinds of sources that you could try, like quantification and things like that, and, and be credible. People, people wouldn't just laugh at you, you know, and you'd be able to do it. So that's, that's, that's the reason. But I think this business of the sort of bad press that the Mamluks got, also um, the era of Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, now, Egyptians have really changed their minds about that. But in his era, because they weren't Arabs either, you know, there was a sense that they were Turks who came and conquered. And so Nasser's era had a very low opinion of the Mamluks. And so, again, that that um, people had to sort of rethink these these negative images that they had about about the field. So let's talk a little bit about who the Mamluks were. They ruled Egypt, Syria, the Hejaz from the middle of the 13th century to the early 16th century, quite a quite a substantial run. They were slave soldiers. This was a dynasty. One of the things that sets them apart, Mamluk is the passive participle of Malika, which can mean to possess. So it's someone who's possessed. Can you talk a little bit about, before we get into specifically how the Mamluk system worked in this sultanate, Talk a little bit about the development of slave soldiery uh, in the Islamic world up sure. to this point. 
Sure. Well, first of all, and that that's very important. It it goes way back. And there, let me mention the one of the great pioneers in this field, and we owe a great deal of our understanding because really, what this is David Ayalone, who was an Israeli scholar, who was the first person to really massively go through the sources to get an accurate picture, often a descriptive one, but still, you know, what really were these people? Who was in there? Under what circumstances? And he was he he was the first to really stress we can't just start with the Mamluks of Egypt. You've got to go way way back. He argues that even in the Umayyad period, the first the first monarchic dynasty, the 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 institution existed. I think first of all, commodification of human beings, one way or another, goes back as far as we have sources in almost every complex society, uh, one way or another. And it's not it's nothing new. And and. That's a tricky issue now because slavery carries such negative impressions, especially in the United States, <clears throat> because specifically the way a plantation capitalist slavery evolved here and, and turns out to have been pretty rugged for the people who were forced to endure it. Uh, but there are many, many other forms. But really, I alone argued that you'll see the first time Mamluk is used as, as, as a person who somehow is, has been purchased or their services have been purchased or otherwise they're indentured. You can see signs of this in even in the Umayyad period, certainly by the Abbasid period, which is considered the high caliphate. Let's say what, what is it? The Umayyads over overthrown in 750, and and the the Abbasids, of course, go on for 500 years until the Mongol Mongol conquest of Baghdad and the termination of the caliphate in Iraq. But certainly by the 800s, 900s, 1000, there are Mamluks. The the example of the capital Samarra which was established under Caliph al-Mu'tasim, whose mother was Turkish. Already, this, 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 this Samara, uh, the site of Samara was, was many of the soldiers there were, were Mamluks. And so the institution goes back a long way. So by the time it was established in Egypt, it was very well known. It was very well known. Now, I emphasize in the book, there are, there are a great range of options within this concept of, of, of being either owned or otherwise indentured. There, there, were, there were a variety of circumstances, and it certainly was not chattel slavery as we understand it, but the, it was certainly a known institution of several hundred years by the time that the Mamluk Sultanate was established in 1250 in Egypt. And of course, in many other countries or many other regimes, the Mamluks were only one part of the military. There were free soldiers, the, the status of free soldiers, and how they related to the various regimes, you know, it varied enormously. I would say, though, by the Ayyubid period, certainly, even some would argue by the Seljuk period earlier, but by the Ayyubid period, the era of Salah ad-Din Yusuf, Mamluks were very widely known. And in fact, of course, the last Ayyubid Sultan, uh, Saleh Ayyub, was worried about the issue of the succession. He is the one who basically created the Bahri contingent of slave soldiers. That really, that's the, the first, the first sultans after the termination of the Ayyubid dynasty, that they all came from pretty much from that Bahri unit. So they, 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 they were very, Egypt was very familiar with these people by the time, by the time the regime was established, as were other, other parts of the central Islamic lands. And keep in mind too, other regimes, the, the Janissaries, the Yenichere of, of, of the Ottomans, the rest, these were, these were commodified people. Who were, so again, this is it's an it's it's an institution that has a long history in Islamic militarist societies, all the way really over to India. Sure, sure. The, the initial dynasty, if you will, I know that's kind of a loosely <laughs> loose term in this case, but the initial kind of origin of these slave soldiers is Turk. They're they're Turkic. They're they're Asian brought in from kind of the Eurasian steppe region that will shift. And we'll talk about that. We can talk about that when we get further into the history, sure. but can you talk a little bit about the preference for Turkic fighters in this period and why they yeah. seem to be so valued all the way back to the Abbasids and, and the, the Turkish soldiers. Oh, yeah. oh, even, 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 even earlier, it's argued. Well, this is now keep in mind, there is today given certain attitudes about racial inclinations and whether certain ethnicities are more likely to be something rather than something else. Uh, I'll just let me say that before getting in. There is certainly by the high middle ages, there is a sense 
in the major Islamic polities that individuals imported from Turkish-speaking Central Asia have they are they are uniquely suited for military purposes. Now people now debate endlessly of how did that evolve? How long has it been known? Uh, if you if you were to read I alone, I alone argued that this was deeply entrenched, uh, and that it was it was just simply widespread, and it was natural in many ways the way that the Romans came to view the Germans, and that the Germans were or you know they they they're, I mean, to some extent the Gauls, but above all the Germans may were were very good Praetorians, this sort of thing, and that and and it, which is certainly true. Uh, they, the Roman Empire, the Roman Roman military structure was very heavily infiltrated by people we could consider Germanic one way or another by certainly the later empire. And so that this isn't, yeah, now I, I think there are probably analogs like this for the Chinese as well, but I'm not going to go there because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not well, well informed enough to have a, a, any kind of a specific opinion about Imperial China. But certainly in our region, now I alone argued that this is this was a mentality, and he's of course he's a, and one thing it's risky to be critical because he's not around anymore, so you can argue with him about it. He was absolutely convinced that 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 this Turkic region, these people produced uh, cadres who were uniquely they 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 turned out to be very very accomplished militarists, and the problem was the problem was they were too accomplished. They they had a way of taking over where they were and and the official the official powers the form were at a dynasty or something could find themselves almost the creatures of their own slaves this sort of thing and and in some ways the way the praetorians could make or unmake emperors you see this sort of thing too who who controlled whom but it is certainly true that there by i would say certainly the year 1000 of the common era in what we would call the central islamic lands pretty much from central North Africa over through Iran and all those territories in between, there was this sense that that Turkic people from whose origins could be traced back to Turkish-speaking Central Asia were very suited to training as militarists. They were very effective soldiers. I would say that this would not be disputed until the arrival of even more effective soldiers from further east, the Mongols. And who were among the first to actually defeat? Because most of the armies the Mongols encountered were Turkic. You see, they were not Arabic. They were they were Turkic armies that they encountered. The Khwarezm Shahs of Central Asia, being they were the first great casualty. They well, this was this was a militarist Turkic speaking regime, and so that would that would prevail. But let me say that when people in in recent decades began really probing who were the Mamluks and and. The late Ulrich Harman did a great deal to sort of look at this. Let's take a hard look. He found out, and, and many others did when they began to probe, that actually Mamluks came from a great variety of backgrounds. They really did. We'll get into the Circassian business later. But, you know, there, there's a sense that, and this is quite a fascinating, I often think that we're sort of, it's, it's for, for, for young people who are good at this stuff. Maybe they didn't score too well in, in life otherwise. You know, they, you, if you knew how to fight in many of these regimes and you could prove that, you got a job. You got a job. And no questions asked, really. Uh, uh, we now know that there were, there were Africans involved in, in some of these militaries and everything, much more than they've been given credit for. And they were just as effective. And certainly by the high Middle Ages, if you were to sort of start looking at, at the actual composition, and that's, again, the biographical dictionaries that help people to do this because... They, they would give people's backgrounds, their genealogies. The range of people who ended up as, as Mamluks was really quite diverse. Lots of Europeans. Uh, Harman found out there was a whole bunch of Germans who were, were in Cairo. And, and the reason they were important is when merchants came in from Germany, uh, the Sultan said, oh, I, I know someone who can speak with you. No, you, don't, you, you just, I'll, I'll, I'll connect you up with these people and, and they, can, they can answer any questions you have. This sort of thing, and a city like Cairo was was from the get go a very cosmopolitan place, and and that's in part because the military elite itself was quite cosmopolitan. So yes, certainly there is the strong Turkish tradition, and let me mention that no matter who you were, you did learn Turkish. That's important, Kipchak Turkish, because that became the lingua franca. 
just that so so people from a variety of backgrounds they all went through this training and that training was largely of course they had to learn arabic for their religious studies but the training was largely in turkish and my understanding is that even prevailed into the circassian period although i'm not absolutely certain about um, some people have probably looked uh, there's a christoph dilster who was one of Jovan Steinbergen's students who looked into exactly what languages did these people really use and and how fluent were they in these languages. Again, see, people have been able to sort of ask these questions. But ethnically, actually, there was a lot more diversity than 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 people recognized before, but that, that the primacy of Turkic dialects was very important. That remained. And so therefore, in a city like Cairo, the, the, the court culture would be very heavily Turkish in terms of the linguistic linguistic apparatus. Before we get into the the a bit of the history of the Mamluks themselves, can, can we position them, let's say, looking at, at the situation in the first half of the 13th century in the Islamic world, what's happening in Egypt specifically, and even sort of within the Mediterranean, what is the position of Egypt and the, the Ayyubid dynasty, which is, of course, on its last legs, the Abbasids who are about to be overrun by the Mongols. They don't know it yet, but they are. Where does where does do the Mamluks emerge? What is the kind of environment or, or geopolitics into which they emerge? Well, they at, at they were when the dynasty was was when the regime actually because it wasn't a dynasty. There were certain semi dynasties within it. Uh, it was we'll, we'll just say that the Mamluk regime. There were major shifts occurring very rapidly in in throughout the Islamic world. And a great deal of that was because of the Mongol incursions, which started in the first half of the 13th century, the reign of Genghis Khan, and, and, and then, of course, the regimes and this truly spectacular conquests, the conquests on a scale, keeping in mind that the Chinese, they, the, the Mongols conquered the largest empire, the greatest empire in the world in many ways, the Chinese, before they even began moving, moving west. And, and so... These are enormous shifts, and virtually every regime is going to have to take cognizance of, of this, this extraordinary change. For example, the termination of the, of the independent Abbasid dynasty uh, in 1258, and this, was, this had been the supreme family of the Islamic world for 500 years. Uh, the successors, Khalifa, of course, the successors to the Prophet, and, and although they are reestablished, it's not an accident they reestablished in Cairo because a relative... Is, is is manages to end up in Cairo and then under Sultan Baybars is is the caliphate is reproclaimed, proclaimed but of course the independent one is gone so yeah the Mamluks the Mamluks emerge very much their formative period is in the shadow of this enormous Mongol imperium which is has emerged very rapidly no one could have predicted it it's certainly in the, its western half. And, and that, that changed geopolitics enormously. Uh, the fact, you see, that the, the Mamluks, I think, gained their, their stature and fame in large measure because they were one of the very first regimes to be able to stop and prevent the Mongol advance, the Battle of Ain Jalut, enormously enhanced their stature. In the, in the region. And really, it's from the establishment, this event, uh, the, the period, um, the, the individuals who precede Baibars the first, Baibars of Bundukdari, uh, are important, but Baibars is really the great architect of the Mamluk regime. And he establishes it as a great power. And it really, and, and Egyptians today are now very conscious of this, unlike during the Nasserist period, that really it would be Egypt's last time as a great power. In before modern times, because it would be defeated in 1517 by the Ottomans, and for 400 years, technically speaking, it would be a part of the Ottoman Empire. And then, of course, it was succeeded by the British, and only after 1952, finally, was Egypt a fully independent nation. And and today, there is a recognition that the Mamluk era really should be respected in Egypt as the last time their country was an independent power and a major power. And really, I would say that's true, that the Mamluks, because they were able to combine Egypt and Syria successfully, which has not been done all that often, and they, they controlled the four great cities, the four, four most important cities of, of, of Mecca and Medina, Jerusalem and Hebron, the great holy cities were all controlled by the Mamluks. 
and uh, they presided over the holiest places in the Islamic world, but they also controlled the trade routes that until the European uh, discoveries around Africa, they were, they were, were really uh, controlling some of the most important trade routes in the world. And so this made them very important and their stature as a great power was recognized and was recognized for upwards of 250 years. So that's, that's really in a nutshell what their status was, but it was overwhelmingly influenced by the, the, the impact, the extraordinary impact of the Mongol, the Mongol Imperium, uh, which, as I say, several decades earlier, who could have possibly imagined something like this erupting, erupting so quickly? There's another political entity that might be more familiar to to people from a European background than the Mongols, but certainly not as important, particularly from the regional perspective. And that's the Crusaders, the, the coup, for example, that starts the process of bringing the Mamluks to power takes place in the context of, I believe, the Seventh Crusade. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about those events, kind of the, this 10-year period from you know, 12, I think 1249 to to 1260, when there's this emergence, it's not quite, you know, the Ayuba dynasty is collapsing, the Mamluks are sort of taking over, but there's this kind of interim period. What's going on for that that decade? This is, of course, the era of Louis IX, Louis Neuf, um, who invaded Egypt. Um, actually, my understanding is that he contracted a truly horrendous case of dysentery, and there are stories about how he had to hang him over the edge of the boat because he was erupting and things like this. He was very ill. Uh, but the fact is that the defeat of the French and the others, the defeat of the French was the very earliest Mamluk rulers were presiding over that. And they drove them out. It's true, the Ayyubids, um, after all, Salah Adin ultimately had to reach a settlement with the Crusaders. He didn't terminate their presence. And uh, the Latin kingdom may have ended, but he didn't terminate it. It was really under Sultan's Baibars and Kalaun that the, the Crusaders were definitively, the Europeans as a military presence, were definitively driven out of the Levant, out of Syria, Palestine, once and for all. And uh, the Mamluks were very keen to take credit for that. At the same time that they were able to stop the Mongol advance, they could also take credit for this, and their stature really did grow. That that, and it really led to for for a long time, Cairo became the preeminent, especially because of the destruction of Baghdad, and Baghdad had to be essentially rebuilt. And even even the later medieval city of Baghdad, it's often argued, you know, was not nothing like the Baghdad of the High Caliphate. But with, with the destruction and termination of the Abbasid uh, regime in Iraq, the, the Cairo was the preeminent city. And, and the Mamluks, would there, they were very conscious of this and, and the, the, the transferal of the caliphate, the Abbasid caliphate was reproclaimed, it's reestablished. And uh, Mustafa Bannister has just come, uh, well, it's been out for a few years now, very important book called the Shadow Caliphate, uh, which lasts all the way, all the way to the Ottoman conquest uh, and the histories of the period. Specifically, they often mention the Caliph first before they mention who the Sultan is. The whole ritual, the Sultan is always seated in the presence of the, of, uh, of the Caliph, in, in the presence of the Sultan. He's very much a presence there. Some have argued that he only exists to legitimate the ruling Sultan. Nonetheless, nonetheless, that dynasty is maintained and, and Cairo can claim the credit for it. So it is in many in, in many ways the most important city of, of Sunnism, of Sunni Islam, until really the rise of, of the Ottomans as competitors, and of course, ultimately, um, they, they, they defeat the regime. But uh, uh, Cairo really emerges as the leading city, and of course, the regime invests tremendously. It becomes a mecca for scholarship, the regime is, is, is lavishes a great deal of, of assets on the construction of mosques and madrasas and other, other embellishments of shrines, the, the building of libraries and all this thing to, to assure that Cairo really is the, the, prime, the prime, prime city of the central Islamic world in this period. It is, it is without question where all scholars would come. I really found this out when I did my civilian elite. The section of the Bain al-Qasrain in, in, in Cairo, you can walk down it now. I call it the Ivy League 
of, of, uh, of this part of the world. I mean, all the madrasas there, you would look at who studied there under what circumstances. It was these institutions. And you look at their faculties, and these are very cosmopolitan. These people are being trained in madrasas and have, have achieved fame throughout this, this whole region of the Eastern Mediterranean. And so, yeah, this is, this is really, the, it's out of that context that the Mamluks established Cairo. And I would say for the next 200 or so years, really until the conquest, uh, it, is, it is unrivaled in terms of its stature as a great center of Islamic civilization. I want to talk a little bit more about the Battle of Anjalut, which you've mentioned a, a couple of times here in 1260, where the, the Mamluks stop the Mongols in the Levant, prevent them from potentially advancing into Egypt. Talk What, what did that battle mean for, again, a dynasty of slaves who had taken power in what was essentially a military coup? The question of legitimacy kind of rings through this, and by what right are, are these people claiming to rule? And I wonder what how important that battle was in sort of the defense of Islam from these you know oncoming hordes of Mongols. What did that mean for the, the Mamluks in terms of their political statement, their political legitimacy? Oh, oh, they they gained they gained a tremendous credit for it, and, and their stature increased. Now, from the Mongol perspective, they, this this was a setback. And as anyone who studies the relationship between the Ilkhan, the Ilkhanate, and and the, the Mamluk Sultanate, this was back and forth for quite some time. Uh, but it was it was from the, the Mamluks made a great deal of it. Historians and everything talk about it, and uh, the fact that. The, the Mongols never were able to penetrate further into the central Islamic world, and they never were able to penetrate Africa, this sort of thing. Uh, they made a great deal of it. As far as the scale of it, this was a time when there were, going to, there were succession issues of the central Khanate itself, way back in Central Asia, when there was any kind of difficulty in the central authority, oh, several thousand miles to the east, or the death of one of the Khans, there, uh, the, the expansion was paused until it became apparent who was going to succeed. People paused their activities because they wanted to go back to, to Central Asia to be uh, involved in the succession. This is, should be taken into consideration. But there is no, there is no question that, that the Mamluks, from the Mamluk perspective, it was of extraordinary importance to their own stature. They could argue they were the proven successful guardians of, of Sunnism in the central Islamic world, whether everybody else in the Islamic world were, was so was willing to agree that it was that important, that would vary. The Mamluk regime, uh, uh, an emerging regime, was very important for them to secure their own legitimacy. And they were concerned. They were concerned about their origins. I don't know whether it was considered quite the stigma that some have argued it was later and that they wanted to cover it up, but it certainly it certainly was an issue. And the, the Battle of Angelut was very important to the creation of their image as not only the, the, the guardians, this sort of thing, but they were they were successful because that it really from then on the the Mamluk Ilkhanid wars would certainly go on for some time. But as time passed, it became apparent that it was very unlikely that the Mongols were really going to be able to cross the Euphrates River in any, in any meaningful sense, that that ultimately would, would emerge. As, and all, even, even in the later period, they would retreat. The, the people can dispute exactly where the boundaries of the Ilkhanate in Iran and Iraq were. It, it was pretty much Iran and Iraq. But this was really considered more or less the kind of frontier. There was a, the, mar, the area of the northern Euphrates was was that it was kind of wild west anyway up there in those there are a lot of lot of pretty rough types who who might recognize suzerains but they 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 didn't submit too much to, uh, to direct authority and wise rulers were willing enough to sort of leave them alone if if they didn't cause trouble i would say that that, that the battle of angelut is 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 very important especially as far as image making is concerned and and people we're, we're, we're aware of it. They ultimately became very appreciative of the security that the Sunanate provided in, in a potentially very turbulent world. And, and they would always point to Angelud about that. 
and especially by bars by bars did because he could claim he could claim he was central he was a central figure in in the military activity so and he was a very he was an extraordinarily successful ruler subsequently the great the great architect of the regime really so let's talk about that let's talk about the the system that's that's built up by bars being really the first I think clear Mamluk Sultan who who builds up these institutions. How did it function? Give people a sense of how it functioned for somebody who, let's say, was brought, was purchased, brought in from from Central Asia as a slave soldier, rising up the ranks to the point where you were senior enough that you could be uh, in contention to become Sultan. And the sort of ongoing tension then that that this system creates between wanting to function in a certain way where it's the slaves who rise through the system and get to the top versus any given sultan who wants to leave leave the sultanate to his children. And you have sort of these mini dynasties that emerge. You mentioned the Kalawunids, that, that's one of them. So, so what's the, how did the politics work here and how how stable was it? Well, it was it was, it was very, it, let's say that, that there were certainly built-in instabilities but these were instabilities that that would play out within an exceedingly stable structure uh, i'm convinced that's because everybody who if you're talking about playing the game of thrones and often i mean robert irwin was someone who said you know a lot of these these disputes come pretty close to the game of thrones image that we have and i i do talk about that in the book to some extent that that there is a sense everybody understands this whole issue of of conditioned friendships and alliances and and there is a little bit to it you know that that remember when it gets violence this isn't personal it's business you know that that everybody understands that this this sort of thing can happen how it worked though uh, there's there's in our field this was another issue that from from maybe the Iolone era that there was this ideal period where you had to be a first-generation imported slave to be really legitimate. Well, there are those who argue the more you look at the institution, yes, that certainly was there, but there were always qualifiers to it. And that it was true that a majority of individuals who ended up in a position of supreme power probably started out as first-imported slaves, adolescents or very, you know, late teenagers brought to Cairo systematically, purchased from merchants in Central Asia for a very elaborate training in Cairo, in the Cairo barracks. And that's fairly well well known, the procedures that went on there. And uh, let me say this, though, that every significant ruler entertained the idea of trying to leave the regime to his, his offspring. And the fact that it didn't it didn't succeed in many cases, and that there that that these these sons who were put in this position were often figureheads, while powerful officers, powerful emirs would jockey among themselves as to how power was to be distributed and ultimately who would succeed to the supreme position. But the the dynastic ideal was very important. It was never lost. And, and let, let's just say this, even if it wasn't adhered to on any systematic basis, it was always potentially there. It was always there as a possibility. And so this is, there's a kind of tension between this possibility and the actual fact that many of the most important rulers did start out as imported slave cadets and then worked up through an elaborate series of promotions, different ranks, all the way up to the, the, a commander a person who could own 100, control 100 Mamluks and, and lead a thousand. And it's argued there'd be 24 or so of these individuals. These are the highest, highest ranking and that many sultans came from that rank. But the, in many ways, the most prominent sultan, Nasser Muhammad I, he was, uh, he was a son of Kalaun, you see. And, and then his progeny, well, well so is the most prominent, I don't know where the term great would come in, the greatest, but certainly one of the most important political figures of the Mamluk regime. And many argue this is the high point of the regime, is his third reign. He was installed and deposed twice, and that left a mark on him, left a very significant mark on him. But then he reigned independently for 30 years. He always regarded himself as a ruler by dynastic right. His father had been a ruler. He had inherited that job. 
And that influenced much of his thinking. I'm also convinced that when he began thinking of how to refinance the regime, arguing that the ICTA system of, of, you can call it land grants, the term fief is often used, that probably was going to present insurmountable problems of alienation and everything. And he began to modify it. And from his time on, it would get modified over and over and over again until in many ways the ICTA system was defunct by the end of the Mamluk period. It had become almost completely privatized and including the, the central establishment controlling the largest block of territory directly. So Anastar Muhammad, I would say, does not think that he was, he was diminished as a, as a ruler because he was not a first generation slave. He never went through the, the barracks experience. He never went through that cursus honorum of, of promotion and careful training. He saw himself as a Dionist. So it's a complicated question and about, about how this institution viewed itself and the importance of, of slavery or indentureship, however you want to call it, how central that was to its ethos. On the other hand, right down to the end, there were, there were individuals who started out as first generation Mamluks. Hannah Barker, who's written a very important study of slavery in this period, she compared two slaves who came from this region, one of whom ended up very successfully placed in Italy someplace, but the other one was Sultan Jakmak. <laughs> he became a Sultan. Both of these boys came from very, very similar regions in Turkish-speaking Central Asia, but Jakmak ends up as the ruler of an empire. The other one is a successful clerk someplace, you know, this sort of business. I can't remember exactly, and I don't want to mis misquote Barker there. But it's a great way to start the book out, you know, to show, look, here are two kids who came from this, and look what happens, you know. So we're, we're really talking diversity here, you know, and one a very successful thing in Italy someplace, and the other one is the ruler of an empire. So, so yeah, this issue of, of military slavery is certainly very important, but it needs to be qualified by the various circumstances as it evolves over time. And there were certainly individuals who became very prominent who themselves did not identify as having gone through that experience. So I want to get into a couple of more thematic topics, but but there's one the one other point of, of history we should mention is the, the periodization of the Mamluk Sultanate has always been or the traditional one, at least, has, has been the Bahri period and then the Burji period when the rulers start coming from, from Circassia, and that starts in the, the 1380s. I, I did want to ask you about that changeover. How, how sharp a, a contrast was it really, and what can we say about the, the Circassian shift and, and whether that really changed anything about the kind of dynamics of the Sultanate or, or not? Well, the sources themselves were very alert to the change because when they were recounting, the they, most, most histories would open with a list of rulers and they would very definitely, there was a line of demarcation between those who were considered Turkish and those who were considered Circassian, which of course is a territory, not a distinct period with a different language. The, the individual who is considered to be the founder of the Circassian regime is of course Barkuk. Uh, and is of Circassian origin himself. There were clearly people who were of Circassian ethnicity in the Mamluk system prior to Barkouk's reigns at the, at the very beginning of the 14th century. Barkouk allegedly establishes a policy of preference for slaves who are imported from Circassian-speaking regions. However, that didn't mean that there weren't others from other regions there and that that Turkish ethnicity disappeared, but clearly there is a very distinctive Circassian presence that is enhanced over time. Most of the, of the sultans, certainly in the 15th century, were of Circassian ethnic descent, and, and therefore they would have known, although all, all of them would have been trained in Turkish, because again, that remains sort of the lingua franca of the ruling class. Now, as far as... as, as changes in the regime. It's very interesting that in the Circassian periods, and we're talking the very end of the 14th century, into the 15th century, his period is around 20 years. And, and he is very important for a variety of reasons, uh, because he also presides over very significant changes in how the regime administers its agricultural lands, how it handles its revenues. So this, this person presides over significant changes from that perspective. But in, in terms of style, increasingly the rulers, they 
they don't preside over over these enormous harems, uh, and therefore there's a potential multiplicity of competing children. Uh, Anasir Muhammad was extraordinary. How many how many children he had by differing concubines and this sort of thing. During much of the of the 15th century, many of the rulers really had one favorite concubine or wife. It was very stable, very stable uh, personal life. And we're now we now know more about some of these these elite concubines who it ends up probably had quite a significant impact on their husbands' policies. We know also that because they were considered more stable, it was a good you if you if you were going to make endowments to try to preserve some some kind of a family establishment, you were very sensitive. You wanted to leave leave to some extent leave that to the administration of these women because their chances for not being deposed were greater than those for the men. And so this is a very significant change in sort of the style. Also, um, during much of the Circassian period, previous rulers were allowed to retire or, or individuals who were passed over, let's say shunted over, and they were not executed. They were allowed to retire to honorable retreats. You could call it house arrest or something, Many of them spent time in Alexandria, and, uh, but some, several of them went to the holy cities. They retired to Mecca or Medina, uh, which was considered a very pious thing to do. Uh, I, I, I think these, these places would have been absolutely fascinating to the roster of individuals who wanted to, seriously, they wanted to end their lives there. And it would have been these, the image of these people reminiscing about their, their extraordinary careers and their later years, you can call it exile or something, in Mecca or Medina in this period, but it was remarkable. And European observers noted this, that the issue of transitions, these, these were less violent than they had been in previous periods and that people were allowed to retire honorably and they were not regarded as a threat. That doesn't mean it, it, didn't, it didn't happen, but they were not regarded as a threat. And so that was, that was a characteristic of the Circassian period. Also, it's been pointed out that the Circassians were very eager to contact their relatives. Much was made of the early Mamluk period. I don't know how accurate that would have been, that, that people did not know their families. They lost all connection with them. That was not a characteristic of the Circassian period. During the Circassian period, uh, many individuals from Circassia related to individuals who were already based in Cairo migrated to the city. Uh, Barkouk was famous because he invited his father, Anas, to come and, and settle and I believe that Anne Broadbridge wrote a very interesting article called Sending Home for Mom and Dad and about, about this, this, this business of this presence. So it was, it was, there, was, there was a whole presence that developed, a Circassian presence that was part of this, this ethos, but not directly involved in military action or, or, or political rule. That was a real characteristic of, of the Circassian period. Kaipe, Sultan Kaipe was, was prominent for being very equitable to people who fell out of favors, that you it provided you know your place and everything, honorable retirement is, is something that's desirable on all sides. Let's talk, getting, getting away from strictly history, can we talk a little bit about Egyptian society, and I know the the Sultanate extends, you know, much, you know, much further than just Egypt. But thinking about Cairo as the political center of the Mamluks, the Mamluk Sultanate, what can we say about society in this period? And then, in terms of the Mamluks themselves and their interactions with Egyptian society, how do we know, what do we know about how they were regarded by, let's say, ordinary people, how much interaction there was between them? Oh, well, it, it, again, in the earlier phases, as this, this field was developing as a specific, there was this sense of their segregation as imposed because of the barracks culture to isolate them from that. It's, it's pretty well recognized now that that's been greatly exaggerated. It's true that the whole issue of the Olidinus, which means these are people, their progeny of different generations, and theoretically they cannot, they're never allowed to advance because they were not first generation imported slaves. And uh, the, the, there's a great deal of debate today about what the term Olidinus means, who, who were the people. The term Ines means people of quality. Uh, and so sons, children of the people of quality, meaning the upper classes, these are the Aulet they are the descendants of the first generation Mamluks. 
uh, how exactly were there, whether there, there were really fixed boundaries as to who really were a part of this uh, category of people, whether it was very fixed or not. But we now know that, and again, I, I refer back to Philip Hitti's impression, where he, he gave the impression of these people as being uneducated louts, this sort of thing. And that, that is not, we now know that's not accurate. First of all, their training emphasized Islamic studies, and these people would become exceedingly devout. People have remarked, isn't there some kind of a, a contrast between uh, the, the level of piety and the willingness to apply violence in politics? I, I don't see any distinction there at all. I think that this, this issue of competition and, and struggle and, and coalition conflict could be very violent had nothing to do with the piety of these individuals. Their largesse, it's now really pretty much agreed. And I, I for a long time, was convinced when we went into this sort of studying this field, well, weren't rich merchants and others equally generous? It seems actually that a great deal of, lar of the largesse, the investment in what we would call high cultural institutions was overwhelmingly Mamluk. And that, that uh, these individuals competed. I don't know of a single ruler who didn't seek to leave a major religious monument. And when you look at the, the profile today of medieval Cairo, it's overwhelmingly the Mamluk city. And, and I, I really wonder if there's any significant figure, any certainly a person who reached the top. And they, these, these people, of course, had access to enormous assets. All of them, all of them wanted to leave something to the city. And it wasn't just a mosque. Oh, that was very important. A place where you could, you, where, where the, an appropriate environment for people to express their devotions uh, to be a place of piety, but all these charitable institutions surrounding it, orphanages, soup kitchens, libraries. It's argued that today we're only beginning because the sources, it's trickier to trace that. The elite women founding hospices for women who encountered difficulties. Were the, was she a battered wife? Was, she, was her husband, did he drive her out of the home? Did she have anywhere to go? And that in fact, these institutions did exist. And they're harder to trace, but people are becoming much more interested in trying to trace these out, that these elite women were positioned to, to establish institutions like that. So really, the high cultural apparatus that we look, look at at this period was overwhelmingly the product of, of Mamluk largesse. So now, as far as their interaction with what we would call non-military society, we now know a great deal about the cadres who actually administered these regimes. And it's a total symbiosis. In other words, and this, this dates back way, way before the establishment of the Mamluk period. And there's all this, this writing, individuals like you, Luke Yarborough and others have been studying non-Muslim cadres in the bureaucracies. In Egypt, that meant overwhelmingly Coptic Christians. And the whole issue of their Christians, they, they can, their ancestors converted to Islam, but they never lost the association with being Christian. And there, uh, there, there was always a kind of stigma attached to this position, uh, but the regime needed their cadres of Christian background to go and administer the state and uh, to handle the finances and this sort of thing. In any case, between the ulama also, the scholastic classes, the clerical classes, and there are very close interactions at almost all levels with the Mamluk, the Mamluk ruling elite itself. So in that sense, it's a real symbiosis. And we now know that many of them were actually quite proficient in Arabic. And uh, they were actually very eager to attend scholastic sessions. They, they wanted to know what was going on in their foundations. They were very keen to do that. They commissioned many of the great works that we have were specifically commissioned. In other words, historians and everything were, were commissioned by these people to produce their works. And the issue of library construction, uh, Conrad Hirschler has done a great deal of research on this, the competition between the, the, the sultans in the earlier period, pretty much monopolizing the great libraries to the, the emirs at all levels, establishing libraries that ranged, their collections were broader than, than narrowly focused. Uh, they, they were, the, the, the range of people who were able to use these libraries was much, much broader than we thought. Uh, much of the research has been done in Damascus which is considered a really major intellectual center. Some argue that, that the, the quality of some of the scholarship really was even superior to that what was going on in Cairo. Throughout the Mamluk period, this class is deeply engaged with 
the civilian. It's a kind of partnership to, to manage the society, uh, but it goes deeper than that. There's a very keen interest. And therefore, this is something really it's important to consider. And I would say that that much of, of what we could consider the, the cultural apparatus of the Mamluk period of Cairo and other cities was due to largesse from the, the Mamluk military class. And I say, I, I, I don't think it's possible to find a single major figure from this period, especially those who landed in the supreme position, who didn't leave some edifice behind to the city. And, and I, I think that's, that's a safe generalization to make. So, Professor, to bring us kind of full circle, I guess, I'd like to come back to a, a question about historiography. We talked about the contemporary Mamluk studies at the top, and you mentioned the, the plethora of primary material that there is for this period. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that resource and why there's so much, who was writing in this period, who was writing history, and how did they approach the writing of history, especially, you know, maybe in comparison with historians of, of the Islamic world prior to that, whose work they were maybe building on or responding to? Oh, okay. Well, of course, now this is this is a gigantic question. One could go on and on for hours. And the more you speak, the more you start reflecting on issues that you're not addressing adequately. It just could go on and on. Remember, I, I, I mentioned I was drawn to this period. Not I didn't know a thing about the Mamluks except what I had seen in Hitti, quite frankly. Therefore, it wasn't all that positive. But when I encountered something like the, the big biographical dictionary that would, would become the basis of my dissertation, I noticed when this was written and it covered the 15th century in Cairo and well, who were these people? And, and when you would begin reading the biographies, the, the stamp of the Mamluks and the interaction between the scholastic classes and the Mamluks was, it was just, it was just loaded. And that work has thousands and thousands of biographies for just one city. But um, the, the, what's interesting is the great tradition of writing narrative chronicles. So, what happened at a certain time, when, where, you know, listed chronologically. That tradition, of course, continues, but it becomes enormously elaborate. Now, the great historian Atabari, who wrote his extraordinary history of the, of the first 300 years, everybody acknowledged in, in the Mamluk period, everybody knew him who was trained in history, because if they wanted to do the classical period from the era of the prophet, through, through the high caliphate, you had to go to Tabari. Tabari, of course, remember, he was an Iranian. He came, he, he was, his ancestors were from Tabaristan. But of course, he wrote in, in Arabic, the, the, this, like Latin in, in medieval Europe, everybody, everybody would know it. It was the language, language of formal discourse and, of course, the language of, of the religious sciences and of the Quran. The writing of chronicles really broadens. In other words, the kind, the range of subjects, wherein someone like Tabari is pretty much focused on rulers, he says it's it's a it's a work of prophets and kings, and he focuses on that, and that's and he has a great deal to say about that. Other other figures and other issues are somewhat tangential. By the Mamluk period, historical writing is much broader. I, I there all the historians in Egypt are very concerned, for example, about agriculture, and they're very concerned about how the Nile behaves. Now you're not going to see that in Syria because you don't have that phenomenon. But everybody realizes in Egypt that, that the, the quality of the agrarian economy is driven by the nature of the floods. Therefore, they elaborately discuss how fast the Nile is rising. They do it cubit by cubit. Uh, they, it's by pigeon post down from Aswan. How fast? Because they can really predict what kind of a harvest are we going to get this year. Is it going to be a low Nile? Is it going to be a high Nile? Is, are the floods going to be dangerous? All of this kind of writing just explodes in the mouth. So you get in, in, these are chronicles, but a great deal of the material, and but it's true of the Syrians too. They're very concerned about how business is being done. How, what are the prices, prices of commodities, all this sort of stuff, so that you're in a position, you could do a spreadsheet from, from, on the economy. And, and many historians have been able to do very effective work. And of course, the enormous growth in trade with South and East Asia and these incredibly expensive commodities with spices at the top. This, of course, preceded the Mamluks because it becomes enormously elaborate in the Mamluk period. So the chroniclers talk about this at great length. So it's, I would say, the range of subjects. Also, the issue of critical writing. Uh, these writers, um, they're willing to say, you know, ultimately, when it comes down to it, 
this administration was pretty bad. And they're willing to write that. This is, and, and I'm going to tell you why. Here is why it was. First of all, the, they, they didn't know how to handle money or they, they took more money than they should have had. And they, they, they like McCreasy, the great sin, if you begin debasing coinage and you start putting base metal because you need more dinars because you've got to pay bonuses and this sort of thing, guess what? People aren't going to trust the currency. And uh, this, is, this is going to create problems. And you get whole treatises written by these historians on where, where the economy is going wrong. I would say it, like McCreasy looked back on the Fatimid era as an era of great accomplishment in Egypt. And this was really a, a golden age. And he, he was convinced and he, he had actually some of his ancestors, etc. He could look back on, on this to connect him to this period. But he was very open to writing at great length about how he felt that the Mamluk, the Mamluk political economy had fallen short and it was declining. It was people were not managing the money properly. The issue of being able to finance this very expensive military apparatus was becoming burdensome and how, how this was going to be accomplished. So that is there, I would say, also a great deal of sophistication that occurs in the, the historiographical writing in this period. But of course, that's only one kind of source. We have so many other sources. One very rich area is that from the Mamluk period on, the religious endowment deeds, those have been largely preserved. They were not preserved they are only sporadically earlier, but from the Mamluk period, we have many of these were preserved and a part of the, the, the issue of charitable endowment we can get a very good idea of what percentage of an individual's assets were reserved for charitable purposes, how much it actually cost to operate these things, and a great deal of how these cultural institutions were actually constructed. Who had what kinds of jobs? What was the nature of education there? Who was paid to do it? These are invaluable sources. Art historians, they're enormously important. Art historians were the first ones to recognize how important the endowment deeds were. And it was really people at, at Cairo University, the American University in Cairo, and ever, several other art historians who said, look, these sources are extraordinarily important. And today, of course, they recognize the in information that they provide is, is really amazing. That's just another kind of source. The biographical literature that I, I mentioned. I haven't even, I can only touch upon the explosion in literature. Now, there was a there was a real issue because the later period was considered by pundits to be inferior to the great classics of the Abbasid age. That has been, that has really been debunked completely. Poetic writing and the writing of prose, prose writing in the Mamluk period is incredibly rich. And the range of topics is so neat because they, they stopped talking about idealized heroes, especially from the pre-Islamic past. Well, these are interesting and people were certainly interested in these stories, but they were interested in, in much more mundane stories. They, and of course, the most famous example is the Alf Layla Walayla. We know them as the Arabian Nights. We know that what we call the Arabian Nights really coalesced in Mamluk Cairo, the version that, we, that, 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 that Europeans became aware of and began the process of translating. Sure, the stories are overwhelmingly Iranian in their, in their origin, but anyone who reads the Arabian Nights, when you look at the food, that's a Cairo market. When you, when you, when you, when you hear all the delicious things to eat, and there are all sorts of works that are poems that are written about good parties, how to eat well, drinking societies, lots of drinking going on, this sort of thing. So the range, the range of options in, in literature is so much broader. And I think people are only now starting to appreciate the great range of this. Now, a lot of it was in, in editions. They, they, they weren't formally edited and copied. So you have to, you, people hunt them down. They're often written in a kind of medial Arabic that is not the high fusa, but that doesn't make them any less interesting. And I, I do predict as more and more of this stuff is translated, uh, Lee Guo has worked on these shadow plays uh, that were, were very interesting. They touch on, it's often called obscene poetry, but it, it's much more than that. And so it, it's, it's, I say it's the, it's the range of, of sources, not just in the formal historiography, but also in, in the literary realm and everything that has made this field so attractive. And there's still much to explore in it. I'm convinced that there is still more to be found. 
that people will uncover and uncover material that has been sitting in archives or in libraries, but people didn't pay too much attention to it, or it was it was recopied later, and they have to sort of hunt it down. It's been worked into other material, but they're, 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 this is really expanding. Imin Daniel is the poet I was thinking of, and some of his stuff is pretty risque, I must say. He wrote much of his stuff when the sultans periodically would, would they would ban drinking. Uh, this is when these people began to write, and they would write subjects that they're, they're pretty racy, is all I can say. And so this is, I would say that's really a characteristic of the Mahmoud period, the great range, the great range of stuff that's out there for people to explore. I think that is a, a great note on which to end. There's so much more we could talk about, but Carl Petrie, again, from Northwestern University, the book is the Mamluk Sultanate, a history, really, if you're at all interested in history in general or Middle Eastern history, uh, Islamic history in particular, I can't recommend it enough. It is such an interesting period and such a great survey of the period. Thank you again, Professor Petrie, for, for joining me. Oh, it's been a pleasure on my end. As I say, I'm always delighted. Thank you for having me. And I'm always happy to talk about the Mamluk Institution and its culture. Okay, I'm back. First of all, I want to thank again, Carl Petrie for, for joining me and please do check out the book. It's fantastic. And as we kind of alluded to in the interview, long overdue, I think, in a way. So yeah, definitely, if, if it's of any interest to you, please check it out. Finally, I did say I would I would say a little bit about this podcast. Been a while since we did an episode, as I said at the beginning. I'm aware of that. Uh, I apologize. It has been very difficult for me to find a reasonable work-life balance that includes doing the newsletter and includes doing the American Prestige podcast and that includes doing this podcast on top of that. So I have just punted on this podcast. To my shame, I will try to do better. I cannot promise you that this is going to become a regular podcast again. It certainly cannot be weekly. I just don't have the time to do it at that pace. And I don't think it will be on a regular schedule, but I do intend to resurrect the Foreign Exchanges podcast in some way. That will probably mean a lot of interviews like this. Hopefully, uh, I'll be able to get more people to, to come on the show to talk about Islamic history and other aspects of history, things that interest me that are not necessarily all that current events related, because I get enough of that in, in other aspects of my career. So hopefully we'll be able to do more of these. And I will try to sprinkle in the occasional episode that's just me for subscribers kind of talking about something that happened or whatever, whatever is of interest. But that's the plan. It's not much of a plan. It's maybe 15% of a plan, but it is uh, the best I can do at this point. But there will be more episodes of this podcast to come. Stay tuned for that. When, I can't say, but they will definitely be coming. On that admittedly somewhat ambiguous note, I will say goodbye. Thanks for listening. Thanks to those of you who are subscribed to Foreign Exchanges, especially if you are a paid subscriber. Uh, if you're not, please check out the newsletter fx.substack.com. If you're not already on the site listening to this through a podcast medium of some kind, please do check it out. And until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.